The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu. Okay, welcome to Ask Alex, episode 195 on the com podcast, sponsored by americascardroom.com. If you want 27% rate back from americascardroom.com, simply sign up for your account by clicking on one of the ads or banners on the com website. Follow us on Twitter at oneouter.com and join the Facebook group, facebook.com slash groups slash oneouter. This episode and all other previous episodes are on oneouter.com website and via iTunes for free. If you want to send questions in for Alex on a future show, then please email questions at oneouter.com or you can tweet them or post them in the Facebook group. Alex, we are back. This is a back-to-back episode, the second part of such, and we promise the listeners we are going to just get right into questions. But it wouldn't be the oneouter.com podcast if I didn't give you just a little bit of time here. If there's anything else you want to discuss or anything that you has hit your mind since the last episode that you, you wanted to mention. Well, let's talk one more thing about poker, guys. Uh, I, I didn't really flush this out because I was trying to keep to the question as fast as possible. There's a few metrics you should have when you play live poker. Uh, I'm really happy with my live poker results the last few years. I, I can only play three or five tournaments a year. If five, a lot of times it's just three. Mostly I do them because I want to see how my strategies are working in the field. And if one is just not working, I want to change that from my teaching. Truth be told, I'm a poker pro now, not professional poker player, just doing more coaching than anything and however when I do play cards I do tend to come out ahead and I think it's really just following a set of systems we didn't get to talk about this much in the last episode but I think this is why I only get to play five tournaments a year but in 2016 I had a WCP main event run I had a WPT final table 2017 I had a small final table at a WPT cash. And so far in 2018, I have a WPT cash. And again, we're talking like three, four tournaments a year because that's about all I get time away from my students from because my students come first and foremost. And the way you do that is you have some metrics. First is how well do you play to your training? Out of every hand you play, what's your batting average? Do you do what you prepare to do? And if you're not prepared in a lot of different situations, that means you're not really trained up. You should really question whether you can gamble with the amount of money you just put down on a tournament because it's just outright gambling at that point. You keep track of your batting average as far as how well you play to your training as far as your actual play when you do enter a pot. Your second metric should be your process, which is 
do you know who's opening, who's cold calling, who's three betting, who did what with what hand after you fold, or are you watching the football game? Number three is how well are you doing on your bluffs? Are you coming out ahead on your bluffs or are you missing on your bus? bluffs? Every single one of your C-bets is not working. you got to start thinking about that. Why is that? If you're coming out ahead on your bluffs, that's really one of the greatest metrics to know if you're going to be successful in poker because if you're successful with your bluffs, that means you're successful when no cards are exposed. That means that running bad's not going to be as big of an issue for a guy like you if you come out ahead on your bluffs. You should be coming out ahead on the regular. When you do run without the ball, how does it work? And you should know the difference between, oh, that guy really got out ahead of me and he didn't need a hand to do that versus most likely ran into a hand there. You should know analytics-wise what people like to bluff with and what people will actually do, uh, what age demographics like what bluffs and whatnot. I'll admit, frankly, I let a guy three-bet me two or three times more than I should have in Borgata. Other than that, I didn't let one go, and I came out ahead on my bluffs, which is why I think I went deeper in that tournament. In uh, WPC Maryland, uh, I pulled off a lot of bigger bluffs that I haven't run in a while, and I think that's what got me to day two with a more decent stack than I really deserved. I I, I stacked one shorter stack guy. I flopped a set, but other than that, you know, didn't get aces dealt once, kings dealt once, queens, no, jacks, no, no, none of that. Actually, now that I think of it, I hadn't really thought of that. Ace-queen once, and I hit an ace. I'll, I'll give that. But when I used to run like that, I would just flounder in tournaments, and I'd get a short stack, and I'd have to hope for the best on the flip. But the longer you can avoid a flip, the deeper you will go in tournaments. And I, I felt I got myself to, like, level... I got myself to the, like, 12th level in Maryland with just recognizing who was C-betting a little too much, who, who was going to back off on a three-bet, stuff like that. Really develop your bluffing game. And the fourth metric is how many of my value bets get called. If you're just getting called on a bunch of your value bets and you have a really high batting percentage, that's usually the bets are so big come river time. That's really all you need. I wouldn't worry too much about getting max value as long as you're collecting those bets. It's especially important in tournament poker where the number of chips in the tournament is fixed. Nobody can reload. So if you get a chip advantage on your opponents, it is because somebody else is now at a chip disadvantage, a more significant one, because they've lost those chips and they can't top up. And you'll be able to hold that over on them for all the next hands. And holding that advantage is going to have a dollar total that is added on to your EV totals in each hand. Your C-bets will work more. Your three-bets will work more, etc. So I do think you have to collect those value bets. So when I see people like shove the river with the nuts and the other guy folds right away and they contentedly stack the chips like my my mind just goes you guys have heard me say this before on the podcast but i i just think fish 
and I almost never use that word. If you listen to this podcast over the years, I've never called anyone a fish, but I, I, I just think trash. Just, I, I think you have no fight. And the most egregious error to me is just you check back on the river like nothing and didn't get value from something, and that you pat yourself on the back for your terrible job when you scoop a pot that should have been twice the size. That 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 is, if you don't have that metric, that is literally, do you make money from poker? That is what that metric means. If you don't have that, I don't know how it's going to work out. I, I just don't. And anyways, guys, I, I wanted to try to work that in. I always have a few notes of things that I try to work in on each podcast. I do prep for these episodes. And... I was trying to work that into the last episode, and I kind of did, but I wanted to just take a second because Barry cued me up there so well uh, to help you guys for your next live poker jaunts. Now, without further ado, let's uh, let's get into some of your questions, right, Barry? Yeah, and just just for full disclosure, I do no prep for the show. <laughs> I, I, that was pure chance that Alex did have something else. I thought he was just going to say no. Let's get on with the questions, but. There you go. It works. It's uh... <laughs> Mary and I are pretty simpatico for two guys who have never met each other in person. Now, all right, let's get into it. Okay. All right. This one is from our good friend G, and uh, that's what G stands for. Now, God help me. Anyway, continue. I'm gonna just uh, read this one out as is, and I'm sorry in advance, G, but you have C attached photo one and attached photo two, and there was nothing attached to the email, and I didn't realize that until now. I've just copied and pasted the text. So we'll see what we can do with this. I think you can still answer it, Alex. I think there's enough info here, uh, what he's talking about. So the question from G is, hello, Alex. May I ask you a question? In one of your training videos, you said, if I remember correctly, three betting small pairs is more profitable than flattened small pairs pre-flop. When I checked my database, I saw the opposite besides from the button position and filtering the same hands flat and pre-flop, did cold call pre-flop, is more profitable in my games than 3-bet and pre-flop. How can you explain that? Perhaps I play them in the wrong way post-flop when not hitting a set as the pre-flop aggressor. Where can I filter for finding the cause for that leak? Or is flat and small pairs in general better? Thanks and good luck for the WPT. So this was before then. You can tell this guy's German because he took responsibility halfway through the question, whereas if this were an American or some other groups, it'd be like, hey, man, I checked my database and it didn't perfectly correlate with what you said, so you suck, right? Obviously, that can't be right then, right? And... I don't think, gee, by the way, I don't think you're, uh, I do not think you're probably playing bad. I think you're probably in much more live games, which is good. And li live, by the way, I, I mean, like, there's more money flowing around. And there's a reason a lot of guys flop flat small pairs. It's because it does work. It's a nice option. As Taleb would put it, you risk a very small amount. If you miss, uh, you don't lose much. And if you hit, you can make a lot. 
This is especially true in games where people go broke with one pair. This is very true in games where people are very deep stacked and they're willing to go broke with one pair. However, right now, in a lot of tournament poker games, there are guys that won't go broke with one pair, but they won't give you a lot of money. There was a pro back in the day. I'm not going to say his name because I don't know. Everybody's apparently really sensitive is what I've found out recently. Uh, and he like, he was just the pot controlling knit of all knits. Like he would just check back two pair on the river. So like flatting, even if I had 20 axes bet, a lot of times I wouldn't call with twos out of position because I wasn't going to make a set when I hit. But I mean, to the guy's credit, he was good enough to see bet on the right boards and get me out. Right. And if I check raise, he's stuck around like he was a good player. Right. But now you got a lot of guys that are a little closer to that, which is they're not going to give you a ton when you flop a set. So the other tact you can do, and I don't know why this works with Americans so well, it's not going to work as well in Euro games. So I think that could be another thing that's playing into this, G. Which is, if you got guys that are opening 20% of the hands or more, and they're flatting damn near everything out of position, they're just folding their high cards on the flop, you almost don't need cards. You'll still be making two, three big blinds uh, per, per pull. And pocket threes, if you flat that from the hijack after somebody opens... You're lucky if you're making four-tenths of a big blind. So even if you're making just a big blind off the three bet, which oftentimes you're making much more, uh, it would be the superior strategy. Now, the other thing about it is, I, in an odd way, I think you control the pot size very well when you three bet in position. Out of position, three betting, like you're going to have to have a barrel game. Uh, that was another thing we were talking about on the last episode, which is, Another reason I'm not big on developing the triple barrel, I mean, excuse me, on de developing the three bet out of position is you're going to, like, if you watch Master Tournament Poker in one class, I just don't try to teach my students that because it's it's like the one-handed backhand in tennis. Like, yeah, Federer can get away with it, but you guys should do the two-handed backhand. You should be positioned bigger pots, superior hands, heads up, because that's what's going to work most of the time. Because if you three bet out of position, guys are going to hold on with one pair and you're going to have to fire three barrels. That doesn't happen as much in position. Uh, a lot of guys, they're, uh, I mean, they'll hold on to one. Uh, I misspoke. When you three bet out of position, a lot of guys will hold on with any pair and a lot of high cards. So you got to keep firing. So if you are going to three bet against a more active opponent, which I wasn't advocating in the last episode, but let's add on to this. If you're three betting against a more active opponent and you see that and he calls and you think his range caps out at one pair, either due to the coordinated range of the board and the fact he would have raised a set, whatnot, uh, or the fact he just called you really quickly and it didn't look like he had a whole lot to think about it. And usually when people flop, an overpair or two pairs that not flush raw. They do have to think about it for a second, whether they have to raise it or not. You're going to have to be content with firing three barrels. And uh, the problem being on 
online you can figure out who's really likely to fold the three barrels because they tend to be the grinders. If you shark scope them, you're going to find a very slow upward line, no real big mistakes. That, that guy will fold. Uh, you'll have played a lot with a guy just because you can get more hands in online and you'll know, you'll see maybe that river fold percentage is like 60%. That that guy, you can go ahead and bomb live. It's like, good luck, figure it out. I've had guys, I've had guys show me sets when I triple barrel bluff and then fold. And I, I thought the guy called and I'm like, take it, you know, I'm like, what? And then, you know, I, I have to hold, hold my face together because I can't believe it. And then there's other guys that just third pair, like, the hell with it. I call you, right? It's, it's hard to find rhyme or reason when you just don't have the, a lot of the hands with the guy. The one guy you can go after is the satellite winner who's traveled a long way. That, that guy's not stacking off in the first six levels, usually with one pair. That, that, that's pretty much a given. Uh, now, when you're three-betting in position, though, you kind of control pot size because people only really check raise you or four bet you with the best of their hands. And if they just call you on the flop, you get to see all seven final cards. And you get to realize your equity more often with your pair because now you get to see flop, turn, and river. And more often than not, what's going to happen is if you have a guy who's opening too much, as he opens too much, he's only four betting about 10, 12.5% of his hands, which is going to be about aces, kings, queens, jacks, if he's really adventurous, tens, if he's a psychopath, ace, king, uh, ace, queen. Or if you have, like, shorter stacks, he'll expand this more. Uh, but as you got deeper stacks, guys kind of treat it like Monopoly money. They open too damn much, uh, and then they flat out of position, and then if they have high cards out of position on the flop and they're facing any C-bet that's slightly bigger than a half pot, they just fold. And in which case, you're just going to clock a couple big blinds like that. And it's very difficult for a small pair in any position to make 200 big blinds per 100. Pocket 8s doesn't make that. Pocket 9s doesn't make that. There's only, uh, there's only a few times that's true, and that's when you're in very loose games. That's also when you're in very deep stack games that are very loose games. And it's also when you're playing against, quite frankly, European competition, because Euros are much better at limiting their openings. Uh, if you look at the literature, or not the literature, the systems that are very popular within the European poker community, the people that still play on PokerStars.com, it's a lot of that GTO stuff. So they're not going to be opening the suited gappers. They'll only be opening the suited connectors a certain percentage of the time. They're not going to be opening the weaker suited aces. You're not going to be bluffing this range that much. So going to war with like fours, not probably the best spot. You might actually just want to fold fours to that person. I fold a lot of small pairs when... When I was playing WPT Prague, and by some miracle I made that final table because I was playing with a lot of guys that knew what they were doing, you know, one of those uh, very, very balanced Dutch regs opens from middle position. I, I've got pocket sixes. I can't flat because the guys behind me are pretty damn good at squeezing. And I'm not going to make a whole lot of money when I flop my set anyway. And I can't three bet because this guy's not even opening ace eight suited there when he knows he's got me to his left. So he's not going to be missing as many boards because it's much more pair intensive. A lot of times I just had to fold. And of course, that doesn't really appeal to my sense of competition. But part of poker is seeing reality on reality's terms.
So my guess is, G, you're in very good games right now, and it's okay if you want to be flatting a little bit more with sets. You also want to, I mean, excuse me, with pairs, saying if you can flop sets. I also would just run through those hands and see if perhaps you've been flopping a few more sets than normal, or if a few people have just gone on some real space cadet lines to give you chips, uh, or if this is a much more consistent thing. If you are flopping a set maybe one out of every 8.5 times and they just keep giving you chips, in which case, okay, you want to work in more calls, especially when people are very unlikely to squeeze you and you don't know if this guy's opening a lot of garbage, by all means, go ahead, work in the call. But I'm just letting you know generally versus frequent openers, the three bet works very well with the small pairs because when the guy, when the board comes out, the guy either hit the board really well or he has pretty much nothing. So it's very easy to turn into a very direct bluffing hand. Whereas... A6 offsuit, I think, is a pretty trash hand to three bet. Because, I mean, it's not the worst hand to three bet. And by trash, I mean, it's just like, it's probably like the worst hand you could three bet. But I really hate it because what most happens to most people is they hit the ace. I had this happen at WPT Maryland. I, I opened Kings, a guy three bet me. Look, I, I'm just going to grind you out all day. I'm not four betting to get it in with your aces. I don't think you're five betting queens, right? So I flat Kings out of position. Uh, board comes queen five six. I check. He bets. I call. A lot of times what I'll do here is I'll check the turn. If he checks back really quick and lets me know he has a pair, I'll, I'll literally bomb like three X pot on the river. And, like, this guy was kind of, like, he looked like a twitchy rag, like the kind of guy that would pay off those big old bets, right? And most guys will not come over the top of, like, 3x pod, 2x pod on the river as a bluff. Like, I mean, Isildur will, but I, my guess is this guy in uh, Hanover, Maryland is not that guy. Anyhow, uh, turn comes an ace, and I check, and the guy checks. And he really looked confused about checking. And I went, it's an ace. And he's not folding. River was like a two. I check. He checks again. He shows ace seven. Like, I mean, a lot of, a, a lot of guys that are, I, I guess the board was queen five seven and he had ace six, if I'm remembering correctly. A lot of these guys do not know how to play these hands, right? When they're in position, because if you flop the ace, it's not really a terrific card. You turn the ace, it's not a terrific card because I, I could have, you could have a lot of reverse implied odds. You could have just hit top pair and I have two pair. And of course, you know, God forbid you bet the turn and fold to a check raise because then you're not a poker player, are you? Right? But the, so when I'm teaching, usually I'll stick with like fours. Because let, let's take that board, right? Or like sixes or eights or something, because if the board is like queen, six, four, you see that the other guy calls, generally his range is going to be like, it's a couple sixes, it's like nines, tens, jacks, it's a queen, and not many high cards, right? Well, most of that range beats you, so it's a pretty easy hand to play for the rest of the spot. 
which is the guy checks you on the turn. Maybe you can fight for the river check. Like you, you can take a really long time to check if you'd like, if you think that's going to do it. Uh, or you can just plan to fold most of the time when he bats on the river, uh, because none of you have a pickoff game in that spot. Like I, I can't find a guy that's really good at calling on the river. When they, they do this like check and I have no idea what you're leading on the river and I call on the river, they, they just always call on the river. So I just tell people, take, get rid of the hero call, focus on getting them to fold on the flop, just their high cards. And that will always net you a profit. And then if they call you, just take your free cards and see if you can flop your set. And then enjoy the fiesta of chips when you do river it. And the guy just leads into you on the river and you raise because nobody's ever led folded a top pair in their life at smaller stakes, online poker, live. Uh, and if you hit on the turn, you have the option to make the pot really big, which tends to be why I recommend it. I hope that helps you, G. Okay. okay. And, uh... Right, let's get into the next one. And uh, this one is from Paul. Do you have any recommendation where I can get a lot of hands in for relatively little money potentially lost during this on the job training period? Preferably where the play somewhat replicates actual playing conditions, not as the other players will do anything because they view it as monopoly money. Maybe playing free sites do replicate real conditions. I may be unfairly prejudging them. I just assume that if it is free, they will view it as a video game where you just hit the reset button when things go against you and you just start over from scratch. Hey, Paul, that's a really good question. Pretty much any game where there's any amount of money on the line will be good enough. One of my students was saying this BS to me, which was, Alex, you don't know what it's like at these low-stakes tournaments. People just, like Barry was talking about in the last episode, they don't, they don't respect my raises, right? Hmm. Stuff like that. And I just was like, I was tired of hearing it. So, so one night I fired up on America's Card Room a 50-cent tournament, and... I was playing that. I had a lot of paperwork that night. So I was literally just one table in this 50 cent tournament while I was doing this paperwork. And I finished like 16th out of like 3000 people or whatever the hell it was or a thousand or whatever. Right. And those guys took it seriously too. At the beginning, it's a lot like everybody's treating it like a lottery ticket, but you're going to have to learn. I was just playing the 3.5 K in Maryland. I had, there was a lot of people playing it like it was a lottery there too. That's part of the game. And you got to, you know, you're going to have to be the one to dictate tempo. You're going to have to be the one three betting and cornering them. And you got to know what bets are even going to make the loose passive players fold high cards and stuff like that. That's part of the game. Uh, as far as where you could get the most hands in, my recommendation always is, well, let's put it this way. You've heard this analogy a lot on this podcast, but it comes up a lot for a reason, which was they were always trying to figure out why a Brazilian footballer was had the same gravitas, resonance, whatever you want to call it, as, you know, German engineering, right? What was it about the Brazilians that made them so special? 
And none of the theories really held water, which was like they play on the beach while well, everybody plays on the beach. That doesn't make sense. So it's like, oh, they're trying to escape poverty. Well, that doesn't make sense because otherwise there's a lot of countries that be filling teams. But what they found out is they played this game called futsal, which is foot, football in the salon, which is just – it's a smaller game. I think you're allowed more substitutions. That, it's a fun game to watch. It's kind of like they took football and made it more like hockey. It's unlimited substitutions, limited players. I want to say uh, the ball is a little heavier, so you have to handle it a little bit more, and it's a, it's much more closer confined. So what happened is all these guys uh, just grew up playing futsal, and they had to get really good with their footwork and getting around players because you couldn't just boot the ball whenever you got in trouble. And when those guys came on to the international scene, they just cleaned up because when they had all this space, they were like, oh, this is so nice. It's kind of like playing pool with those uh, smaller pockets. Uh, once somebody brings it up to regulation again, it's going to – it's going to feel a lot wider. Or what they do with major league pitchers now is they give them different weighted balls to throw, and then once they throw a baseball again, it feels lighter, and they get it an extra five miles an hour on their fastball. There's a way to do this with poker too, and that's called six max. Uh, six max is just going to – if you are folding 90% of your hands, which most of you are, from under the gun, under the gun plus one, under the gun plus two. That means if you're just playing full rank, a third of your hands are just not – you're just not playing nine times out of ten. So those hands don't really teach you anything. And if the average winning hand is like a set in big pots, these full ring games become much more about harvesting your sets – which is, you know, maybe that's a nice way to make money. There was a time I went spectacularly broke down in Costa Rica when I was like 21, 22. And I just played $50 full ring on full tilt for a couple months. And I, I put together some money and I, I was back on the game. And that's nice to have that option if you need it. It's a better option than I, I think Doyle played like Penny Bridge or something when he bro went broke, right? It's nice to have that full ring option, but it's not going to teach you a ton. Whereas six max, woo, that average winning hand is all over the place. There's a lot of times, just because, you know, there's less people, there's more often nobody has nothing. If you can learn how to win with nothing, then you don't need cards to win, baby. And that's when you're going to start finding ways to win in poker, even when things aren't going your way. Six max will just drill you consistently over and over and over again. Small blind, big blind, button, cut off, hijack, play it, go. And it's just that pressure. It's like futsal. You're always under that pressure and you just, you learn to shine or you die, right? Heads up is also, you'll notice that most of the very successful poker players on earth play one game. They play heads up because that's one of the purest games in poker ever. Let's put it this way. I, as far as a six max reg, I was mediocre. I was a one two reg. I did very well at one two. I did okay at two four. 
I did move up to 510 and tried higher stakes games. It never really worked out. I honestly, honest to God, did not lose much, but didn't make much ever. Uh, pro- probably a small loser. When I got on that, 2-4 did well at, 1-2 did well at, and it was all 6 max. I paid my bills with that for years. Heads up, I was not, not doing much. Never worked out at Heads Up, I'll be quite frank with that. I had a lot of fun playing Heads Up, got really into it for a while, but never made a living off of it. But if you take those concepts, like even if you're playing like 10NL, you're going to be playing with grinders. And at some point in No Limit Hold'em, you have to outsmart grinders. Because the people who hang out... And poker tournaments and take up the most tables or sit down at the most tables tend to be grinders. Recreational players come in and they only get to play a little bit and then they have to leave. They have to go back to real life. If you want to learn how to beat up on regulars, you get infinite hands at six max. If one guy sits out, another guy is going to sit in and the lessons start again. Just turn off the chat. If you can harvest the hands... Put them in a stat tracking tool. Look at the databases. I'd really recommend getting good at that. I wouldn't play live. Live, you're not going to get a lot of hands in. I love live, but I would, uh, yeah, I I would just fire up, especially if you want to make money. We have a rake back deal on America's Card Room on this site, and none of these other sites are kind enough to give you rake back anymore. You can just fire up a ton of tables. There's, especially at lower stakes ACR, there's a lot going on. And, yeah, I would just pound through it. And the thing I was trying to say is I never, the the ending of that story is I was like, oh, okay, cash game rag. Like, I did, I paid my bills for years off of it. And it was, it was good. There, I had one three-month stretch. I was red hot at cash but looking back i think that was just really weak player base and i was just hell bent on making money i was an animal back then like 16 18 hours a day uh between tournament poker and uh cash games but most part i was pretty generic but dude when i came back into tournaments and this is a guy who never made a living playing heads up never moved higher than 2-4 in cash, I stomped everyone's ass at lower stakes tournaments, especially when we got heads up. Like, they would fall for the simplest tricks. Like, a 25NL heads up grinder would not fall for. I had guys falling for those tricks at 100R final tables. I couldn't believe it. I was like, how is this working? You realize how it works is these guys only play tournaments from the time they're young because that's very attractive to them. Well, how often are you going to play heads up? If you're playing like if you're playing tournaments with 3000 people like many of these guys who cut their teeth only on poker stars and you get heads up one time out of 1000, you're a fantastic player. That means you're going to have to play a thousand times before you get one heads up match. If you're not good at heads up, I don't know. I don't think you should be playing tournament poker. That is the biggest payout jump the entire tournament. And it is always fought with one format. 
And you don't have to be that good at heads up. I, I, I'm totally fine confiding to you guys that I watched great heads up players again and again and again. And I really, I wasn't as attracted to it as six max six max. I really loved my W coop event. win was in six max, my biggest online score F top six max was, was six max. Uh, I, I just love Six Max a lot. I'd really recommend Six Max if you want to get good. Uh, and Heads Up Poker. Any stakes with money in it, uh, just go for it. I was going to say that, just re-emphasize what Alex said. That you really you would be better playing one cent, two cent than play money, wouldn't you, Alex? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just one cent, two cent, they're... Is anything where people got a buck on it would would get that? You see that in all of life. Like if you go to a free concert, people act completely different than if they had to pay a dollar to go in. It's just human mentality of once you have something invested, you got to take it seriously, no matter what that is. Absolutely. But again, the amounts don't have to be that big. When I was playing that fifty cent tournament on ACR. People were getting spooked when I three bet. They didn't go after me. They were trying to play for the. It might not seem like a lot of money. I don't know what you do for a living, but like two hundred dollars or whatever it was up top might not seem like a lot of money to you. But that that could be a lot of money to somebody who's in college, uh, some somebody that's from a country where the U.S. dollar is really strong. So you'll get your lessons in how to play back at people if you. Even as Barry is saying, just playing Penny Anna games. Yeah. Um, okay, Alex, we are running a bit low on time, but I want to, since we said we would do a lot of questions in this one, uh, if you could maybe do, we've got another one from G, so we may as well give G the last shout on this episode. And um, this one is nice and su- succinct. So it is G. Hello, Alex. Could you give some examples of good check raising or raising rivers as bluff spots? That's a terrific question, G. See, like, the reason I like G, it's always, I used to have this friend who was just a real ass. I'm not going to lie. Uh, You know, just German dude said anything that was on his mind. He was, like, my best friend because, like, he called me on everything, right? So you just couldn't have blind spots. G is, like, the polite version of that. Oh, funny. I think he's German, too. But, yeah. Anyway, he – this is, like – this is such a good question, right? Well, like, a good one – I'll give you a good one I always keep track of is – and to give credit where credit is due, I think this is Mr. Marchese? Is that how you say his name? Thomas Marchese and Tree Wynn talked about this. And anyway, look up Tree Wynn books. Like he had, he had a few, he had a few wonky books, but there's so many good, like, look at these books were so strange. They were like 76 pages and it was like a funny PDF and you'd be reading it and you'd be like, you know, it was really big in like 2007 or whatever, and it was just like, whoa, like, what was that? And one of the ones they brought up is, do you know a guy double barrels a flush draw or raises a flush draw? That really opens up some things. So 
I'll give you one I used to always do. It's like, let's say I have ace of hearts, seven of clubs in the big blind. Guy raises 2.2x on the button I call. Uh, board comes, uh, I already forgot the suits I gave. So uh, queen of hearts, seven, six of hearts. I don't think I said hearts. So anyway, I check the guy bats I call. Turns off suit two. I check, he checks. Now let's say I know for a fact he's the type of guy to double barrel a flush draw. And there's a lot of guys like that. You know the regs. You know the regs that just can't back down on the turn. Well, River comes like off suit three. I check to him, and then he bets. Oh, no, not off suit three. The River brings the flush draw, right? I check. He bets like 40% or something. That's like I'm trying to get value from like tens, jacks, uh, or like queen ten, right? Live, I would literally do this if the guy didn't know me. <sighs> I'm all in, right? And then it would just look like a dumbass with a flush, right? And you would just get a snap fold again and again and again, especially if you had, like, obviously don't do this if you're 100x deep. But there were just guys that, like, it was – and you can actually, from the assassinofhud.com, there are guys you can just look at what he bet the turn with, and it's just like, oh, every time he had a flush, he bet the turn. Or you can play back his river bets uh, when he had, when he had a river bet, and it was just oh, he just always bet the turn when he did it. Uh, another time for like raising the river as far as a bluff, and I know we don't have a ton of time, so I, I just want to give you a couple that you can work with. And by the way, that situation, dude, is so rare. Like I I don't do that one that often, but let's say you have just like an attack dog. Right, and the attack dog is going to see a trouble board and go after it, right? And a lot of these guys' dichotomy is if they if they would bluff a board, they assume you would bluff a board. So if they actually have it, they check a lot. So I'll give you an example. Another time I turn a hand into a bluff, because most of the time when I check raise a river, I'm turning a hand into a bluff, right? So uh, let's just say I called with the same hand, a seven off. Board comes seven, six, no, no, eight, seven, six. I check, he, he bets, I call. Turn is a two, check, check. River is a five. So now it's ace, it's eight, seven, six, five, two. I check. The funny thing is there, I know if he has pocket fours, a lot of times he checks back. If he has two pair, he's not going for value. So it's really like a nine or nothing. And sometimes you can just tell by the sizing. There's a lot of times guys, when they want to get called, it's like, and this also comes up in the assassinohud.com. Uh, it's like 40, 50% when they want to get called, and it's like 70 when they don't. So there's a lot of times I check there, hoping for the showdown. The guy bets like 70%. And the, people have little mannerisms when they do it, right? They kind of stamp their chips in or something. It, like, there's times you know, right? It just, you got to take a deep breath. Uh, if you automatically do something, I think that looks a little bit more like, okay, I'm going to jump off the cliff into this water. 
better psych myself up. But just they bet 70, 70% of the pot. Just check raise like one, two X the pot. Right? I've even had guys like show me like Jack Nine there, right? Like just the straight, but not the nut straight. And full to me, right? And I'm, I'm okay, fine. But what usually happens is the guy gets, you know, he looks dejected and he kind of like stalls for 20 seconds because he doesn't want to look stupid and he folds. I I think those would be the, uh, those would be two of the bigger check raising ones I use on the river. I, I think that would serve you well to start with G. Okay. Okay, Alex, that's all we got time for. Uh, we can blame the New York transportation system. Uh, for cutting this episode short. Um, how can people get in touch with you for further information of your products and get on the newsletter, etc.? If you would like to get on my newsletter and like every other day or so get a free article from me, a free podcast, a free video, something along those lines, go to my old blog. It's called PokerHeadRush.com. Uh, not a whole lot to look at just was a blog, but go to the top right and sign up for the newsletter. And if you want to be a real champ at this, go into your email list and add Alex at pokerheadrush.com to your contacts. That way you'll get every single one of my emails. It'll be just delivered. So like having me as your coach and I'm just sending you reports every couple of days. I think you would want that for free. And you especially want to do it now because I got a bunch of, new videos to put out. By the way, if I could toot my own horn, I release like hour-long strategy videos with hand analysis and questions and simulators. And like simulations, just highfalutin way of saying I put you in a situation in poker and see what you do, right? And if you want to get all of that, you got to sign up for that. Also, check out... Check out my strategy videos, classic strategy videos, hand history reviews, me reviewing other hand histories, live sweats at Tournament Poker Edge. Uh, you can write me at alexandpokerhedrush.com. As always, follow me on Twitter, at the Assassinato, and read my articles at America's Cardroom blog. Okay. And to keep your questions coming in for Alex on a future show, please email questions at oneouter.com or you can tweet them to at oneouter.com. That's at O-N-E-O-U-T-E-R-D-O-T-C-O-M. Alternatively, post them in the Facebook group and they will get added to the list and eventually we will get around to them. Um, Alex, thanks for joining us again. Until next week, cheers. Cheers. The Sunday Major is back to the USA. America's Card Room is kicking off 2018 with a Texas Hold'em-sized bang that could change your life. Beginning January 7th, America's Card Room is hosting the biggest Sunday Major on the planet with $1,001,000 on the table every week. Yes, $1,001,000 guaranteed. Forget about just one time to change your life. The $1,001,000 guaranteed tournament is happening weekly, all for just $265 a pop. For all the info, check out americascardroom.eu.